KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Protests have been raging for months now in Israel over judicial reforms proposed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, which would give more power to the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Demonstrations escalated again this weekend after Netanyahu fired his defense minister. ABC's James Longman was there in Tel Aviv. Massive crowds blocked a major highway in Tel Aviv, lighting fires and chanting democracy. And in Jerusalem, protesters gathered out front of the parliament building and near Netanyahu's home, clashing with law enforcement, police spraying water cannons, barricades broken. Many people in the U.S. are supporting the protests, even holding demonstrations locally, like at the Philadelphia Art Museum, where KYW's Nina Barati reported earlier in March. Another Sunday at the bottom of the Art Museum steps, local protesters are supporting those in the streets of Israel demonstrating for democracy. Government officials want to reform the justice system that would weaken the powers of the country's Supreme Court. Protesters and critics feel the move will destroy Israel's democracy. Government leaders say the move will help rein in the Supreme Court. Sometimes, you know, people think, oh, maybe it's the left, maybe it's the right. No, it's not. It's our house. And we don't want to be in a situation that we lose Israel again. That's Shani Amram, who's originally from near Tel Aviv and lives near Philly now, who spoke at Sunday's rally. We have the checks and balances system. Once you hurt one of them, you have a problem to call it democracy anymore. The politics of this are complicated and can be hard to follow, so I asked Rabbi Josh Weinberg from the Union for Reform Judaism to help us understand what these protests are about. Even people who are possibly in favor of some sort of reform are saying this seems to be the dismantling of democracy. The fact that they won the elections and they now can rule and you know they sort of won the game it doesn't mean that they are now allowed to totally change the rules of the game. He breaks down how Israel got to this point, what's at stake in the country, and what it could mean for other countries, including the United States. So to start, Rabbi, I think a lot of people have seen video of the protests. They have seen headlines about the unrest in Israel. But for people that maybe haven't had time to dig into articles or really kind of absorb what's happening, kind of the root of all this are reforms, judicial reforms that Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to pass. Am I correct? And if so, can you explain kind of what these reforms would do? Yeah, depends on how far we want to go back. But um, some would say that this was a long time coming um, and uh, we could go back a few decades to look at what some called the judicial revolution of the early 1990s, and that this is an attempt to sort of reverse that. Um, and it's really multi-layered because some people look at the five elections in the past four years um, that have led up to this and the inability of um, any single coalition to come out of it until now, which includes the most extreme elements of Israeli society, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish population, and the what we call the ultra nationalists, but maybe I'll just say just a word about what happened in the in the 1990s. Um, and it's important to understand that Israel does not have a constitution, which I found fascinating. Yeah, um, and the reason why they don't have a constitution is because they essentially could not agree on what would be the basis of the constitution. Should it be the Torah, essentially, you know, the, the book, you know, book of basic Jewish law, or should it be? something more akin to the Constitution of the United States that came out of you know the Enlightenment thinking. And so 
It does have a set of basic laws, though, which have uh, more constitutional weight. And in 1992, Israel passed a law called the Law of Human Dignity and Liberty and Freedom. Essentially, that all people have a right to liberty and freedom. Then, this is like the short version that the president of the Supreme Court, or what we would call the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, essentially elevated that law to a supreme status to be the basis of judicial review. This is essentially like in the United States, we did this in 1803 in a case called Marbury versus Madison. Um, and that established judicial review then on when all laws are deemed legal or not based on that law. And some others said to, to him, to say, okay, well, who, who gave you the authority, essentially? You were not elected necessarily by the people. And who gave you the authority to just decide that that law would be you know, above all else? And there was a case, court case in 1995 that, that led to this. And so since then, you know, for the past 30 years or so, some people and, and some you know, members of the, you know, of the Knesset or of Israel's you know, more conservative end of the spectrum basically felt that the Supreme Court had been an activist Supreme Court and had overstepped its limitations in exercising its veto over certain laws and certain bills that would come to the Knesset. Now, in addition to that, we can't ignore the fact that the prime minister is currently on trial for three cases of corruption. And so it is in his own personal interest to control or to change the way that judges are appointed to the Supreme Court and being able to appoint them himself. And so even if someone were to make the case to say, yes, the court is in need of reform. The judicial system needs to change and we need to look at that. I think the majority of Israelis would say, fine, let's embark on a process you know, through which we can you know, bring in legal experts and, and, and really negotiate and get a consensus on this, which would hopefully, hopefully result in a constitution or, or at the very least, you know, a bill of rights uh, that would have sort of collective agreement. What's curious, and I think is what led to so many to protest, are a couple of things. One, the main party, which is the Likud, that's, that's the Prime Minister Netanyahu's party, which doesn't have the majority, but it has the plurality. It has 32 mm-hmm. seats out of 120, and it's the largest party government right now. And it appointed its justice minister. His name is uh, Yariv Levine, who is purely ideologically bent, and he's been talking about this for 20 years, on these kind of judicial reforms. They did not mention this at all during the campaign, which is curious. And I went back and read through the entire Likud platform, uh, and it is not mentioned there either. Okay, And then the minute that the coalition was formed, this was in early January, about um, you know, almost you know, four months ago, they embarked on what we would call like a blitzkrieg of legislation, just trying to push through so many things. And I can give you some examples. The number one example is changing the structure of you know, the process for how judges are appointed, which doesn't seem like something that would you know bring people out to the streets in massive protest. However, however, what it is doing is shipping away at the independence of the Supreme Court and taking away, you know, sort of removing those checks and balances that are so sacred. Another piece of that is the ability of the Knesset, the, you know, Israel's parliament, to override a Supreme Court ruling. Okay, so we have this in the United States, where if the you know Congress passes a bill, um, the president is able to veto it, 
And then it goes back to Congress, you know, to both houses, right, the House and the Senate for, you know, a special majority that can then over overrule it. But the key there is a special majority. Um, and even like, you know, if, if we wanted to make an amendment to the Constitution, that is a lengthy process that would take serious, you know, politicking and, and getting a, you know, real large consensus uh, that would be sort of bipartisan and, and, and explained. But but not what not under what they're uh, proposing right now because they want a sixty one member that is a simple majority override of the Knesset uh, for the Knesset for the Supreme Court. What they're saying is that if the Supreme Court deems a bill or a law to be unconstitutional, okay, the the Knesset with the simple majority can say, oh no, it's not. So for instance, if they wanted to pass a law that says all women have to sit in the back of the bus right now, or all Arab parties are unable to run in the Knesset, or certain people don't have the right to vote, or if you know if you see a Palestinian throwing stones, you can open fire on them. These are all all real things. Um, or you know, the only kind of prayer that should be allowed in the state is ultra you know Orthodox prayer. You know, th- those are those are like actual possibilities. That there's no limitation on those laws being passed and then enforced, and that is really the source of the protests right now. Because even people who are possibly in favor of some sort of reform are saying this seems to be the dismantling of democracy. And and just the last thing I'll say about it before we we can move on is is that we're not protesting the results of the elections. Everyone agrees that the coalition and the you know the current governing coalition uh, won the elections fair and square in a free and open you know the democratic elections. Yet the fact that they won the elections and they now can rule and you know they sort of won the game, it doesn't mean that they are now allowed to totally change the rules of the game, right? So even if they if they are the majority, it doesn't mean that they can't. They can now sort of dismantle the Supreme Court and uh, remove the separation of powers clause and just totally rewrite the, the the rules of the game to to maintain their power. That goes from you know liberal democracy to what I believe you know the Tocqueville called a tyranny of the majority. That's what people are really frightened about. I think. So we've seen these enormous protests. Just I mean, jaw dropping, breathtaking, however you want to describe in size. Is this unprecedented in Israel for anything? Yeah, and that is the one word that I think I have said more in the last 12 weeks than any under, the word unprecedented. Now, Israel's always had protests, and it has always had you know, really deep, deep divisions within society, going back to 1948 and even before. However, the sustained protests over these 12 weeks, bringing out crowds in the numbers of, you know, 150, 160,000, sometimes you know 250,000 people. That would be roughly the equivalent of the United States of around you know 16 million people coming out to protest on a Saturday night, and they're ramping up. So we've seen what's called the National Day of Disruption, where people take off school, take off work, go out to the streets, block the highways, block the trains, you know, really to disrupt or even paralyze life. And just this past Monday. Um, after there was like a tipping point where the prime minister fired his defense minister for publicly stating, after he did so privately, 
publicly stating that these reforms are posing a security threat to the state. Okay. He then summarily dismissed him and people took to the streets and masses like in the middle of the night. Okay. And that, that is what's unprecedented. And I think that the, um, that the right, you know, sort of the coalition anticipated some sort of protest fatigue and that, you know, it's a lot of commitment to keep going to all these protests, uh, you know, even when the airport was closed and um, schools are, you know, different, different institutions were, were, you know, were shut down because of this. Um, And they said, you know, they can't last that long. And they have. And I, I think we're starting to see a little bit of a splinter because this past week, also, the prime minister announced a a freezing of the legislation, which is, I think, a sign that not one thing, but everything. I, I, I use this phrase: you everything together all at once. Kind of everything, all of the different pieces together, really did work. Actually, and the protests were extremely effective in disrupting uh, disrupting life. So he announced a freeze, especially as we're coming up to the uh, to the Jewish holiday of Passover next week and the Knesset uh, you know goes on a recess and so there's a debate whether we should continue with the protests or whether we should you know kind of simmer down and see see what happens next but yet totally unprecedented you mentioned earlier the fact that the prime minister has been facing charges and from the outside I feel like I've been hearing about that for years you talk about all these ripple effects that could come out of these legislations if they are passed is there a feeling specifically with the prime minister how much of this is belief in these changes and how much of it is strictly I will do whatever it takes to prevent being put in jail? I would say that it's a it's a yes and in that you know if, if the president of the United States could control who the attorney general is and to keep him out of uh, any legal troubles then I think the prime minister of Israel would do would do the same. However, there are multiple camps, you know, ideological camps here that are all sort of, you know, piggybacking on this moment to forward their agenda. So the prime minister is certainly certainly one, um, and he's been talking about, you know, restructuring the uh, court system to be in his favor. However, I would add that the minister of justice and another num- another member of Knesset called Simcha Rothman, who's from the Religious Zionist Party. And he also happens to be the chair of the Constitution, Law, and Legislative Committee, which is putting forth all this legislation. Um, they are sort of purely ideologically bent on this issue. Simcha Rubman, you know, he wrote two books about this, and he's talking about it for years, which has some deep-seated emotional and and cultural uh, motivation behind it, in that they're feeling that the Supreme Court had been ruled by this sort of secular Ashkenazi elite uh, for for many, many years. And this is the moment um, for their, I guess you'd say, you know, comeuppance or, or or for them to to make these kind of changes because they have a majority in the Knesset. But there are two other camps that are really, really critical to understand. One is, I'll call them sort of the messianic, um, fanatical, greater land of Israel, Dare I even say it's a bit controversial, but I'll say it nonetheless. You know, Jewish supremacist um, faction uh, led by two guys. One one is the minister of finance. His name is Bezalel Smutrich, and one is the, now the minister of uh, national security. His name is Itamar Ben Gvir. Some of our listeners may remember his uh, mentor. He is a disciple of Rabbi Meir Kahana, uh, who was of course assassinated in New York in 1990. 
And they are essentially trying to institute a policy by which they can have unbridled and unrestricted access to more land and more building in the West Bank or in Judea and Samaria uh, to sort of push through a de facto annexation of that and to establish a system of inequality where there are different laws for non-Jews in Israel and for Palestinians than there are for the Jewish population. And up until now, the Supreme Court has been the the, the limit on them, you know, the, the, the restriction to them to say, no, you cannot pass those laws. They are, even though we don't have a constitution, they are unconstitutional. So that that's, that's one camp. Um, and the other camp is the ultra-Orthodox camp that is also using this moment to do a few things. One is to you know pass through what I would say um, is freedom curbing, you know, or, or taking away the freedom of, of individuals by passing, you know, religious law and imposing or coercing that on the public, and also making sure that they maintain their exemption from the army. Right? Israel has a a, a mandated national conscription for all citizens, um, except for Palestinian Israeli citizens, um, and there are a number of exceptions. But by and large. There's been a big controversy over whether the ultra-Orthodox population, uh, which is about 11 or 12% of the population, whether or not they should be exempt uh, from the army. So, so those, those are essentially the, you know, like the main ideological camps that are all in this together trying to push these reforms. And so um, I, I'll just give you an example. We sat with two uh, prominent heads of parties who are now in the opposition, but they're really only in the opposition because they oppose the prime minister and not because of ideology. And they said to, and because I think they have integrity, uh, and they said to us, listen, we worked with Netanyahu since he was you know, prime minister in, in, in the 90s. He, he will drive this bus off the cliff uh, in order to save himself. And so you know, it's not my necess- you know, opinion necessarily, but I you know, heard it from prominent uh, legislators who know him very well. And that's also why people are like, we have to do everything we can to save this, and that was really evident in his firing of uh, of his defense minister. Now, and please, if I'm conflating positions, correct me. Did the prime minister not bring the defense minister back on the idea that basically, and if I'm framing it wrong, let me know, but like basically the defense minister gets a militia that's at his control? Am I, and where does that figure into that? Because that seems... That doesn't seem like a good idea from the outside, <laughs> right? It's like, hmm, you know, not 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 a great idea. So 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 let's separate up here. So the defense minister, who is in charge of the army essentially and in charge of the security of this of the state of Israel, um, there is a separate ministry. Uh, it used to be called the minister of internal security, who controlled the police. That is this guy Itamar Benvir. The defense minister was a guy called Yoav Gallant. It is interesting to know that even though the prime minister fired him, Gallant, he actually never gave him his letter of of dismissal, and so it's it, there's this like weird gray area of like is he actually fired or is he not? And you know, no, it's it's not clear. But Ben Gvir, who is this firebrand, just to give you an example, the guy, so so he changed the name of his ministry from internal security to national security, okay. And they allowed him to transfer one unit called the the border patrol unit from the defense ministry to his ministry. Okay, that was part of the coalition agreement. And now, as a deal that was signed on Sunday, 
Sunday, the 26th of March, uh, as a deal for not bolting the coalition and collapsing the government and having to go to new elections, Ben Gvir insisted that he'd get his own unit, which he's calling a National Guard. And I think you're right to use the militia term um, in that don't think of it as like the National Guard like we have in the United States that comes in for like, you know, natural disasters and emergencies and, and, and so on. It would be his own special forces that answer to him and him, him only. And the reason that people are like raising their eyebrows and getting you know, very on edge about this is because of what happened in May of 2021, when there was you know, a war with Hamas, essentially, but considerable violence broke out in what we call the mixed cities in Israel, where there's a mixed population between Jews and Arabs or Jews and Palestinians. And we saw, you know, groups of rioters, you know, the Palestinian Israelis sometimes, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, running around the cities, burning cars, attacking people. They were countered by a group of uh, of Israelis, of Jews. There was just a counter protest of them in Israel. And so Itamar Ben-Gvir during that period said, okay, we need to start having our own militias because the police aren't protecting us. And so we need to start doing like a, like, like a citizen's guard or a citizen's patrol. Uh, and we need to have armed people in the streets to protect us. And of course he was fear-mongering and trying to build, build that up. Um, and now it's becoming official actually. And so that, that I think is, is, is quite scary and very dangerous. We need to take a break. We will have more with Rabbi Josh Weinberg right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back continuing our conversation on KYW News Radio in depth with Rabbi Josh Weinberg. You mentioned the pause. What should we look for now? What should we be anticipating? How long could this pause last? Uh, you know, where are we? So, so a couple of things. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think a couple of things. One, we we need to be watching the negotiations that are now taking place. So, each of the parties of the opposition have been meeting through the convener, who is Israel's president, which is separate than the you know, separate from the prime minister. Israel's president is more of a figurehead, a symbolic, you know, a ceremonial role. But the current president happens to be a seasoned legislator and lawyer and uh, is, I think, absolutely the right person to be convening these negotiations. Um, and and each party is sending sort of their crack team of negotiators to sit down and say, okay, fine, we understand that you want to push through these uh, judicial reforms. Let's find a way to get to yes, right? Let's find a way that we can curtail some of them and I think the, the the bottom lines or the red lines for them are going to be one, how do we ensure somewhat of a checks and, and balances? You know, how, how do we ensure some sort of limitation of, of the majority's power? And two, how do we ensure um, the protection of human and civil rights? Uh, and that that's going to be the bottom line. So that's that's one thing to look for. Another thing we have to watch is is the sort of volatile pressure you know cooker situation that we're in in terms of security because when these two holidays overlap right now the holiday of Passover in which a lot of 
Jews make a pilgrimage up to the old city and to the, some even go onto the Temple Mount. When it overlaps with the uh, Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which is happening, you know, concurrently, that is a recipe for, you know, violence to break out. And so that's, that's, that's very scary. Um, and I think that we also have to watch um, what's going to be put in the budget of the state of Israel. The budget for 2023 has not yet been passed. Uh, and the deadline is May 29th, which seems like there's some time there. However, nothing happens during the holiday of Passover. You know, that's seven days gone, you know, or uh, 10 days, whatever. And then we have a series of, of uh, national holidays that take place and we're celebrating Israel's 75th independence. So, so not a lot's going to get done. And then all of a sudden we're going to see some really shifting priorities and shifting of budgets that, that get placed by some of these ruling parties. Uh, and so we actually, we have a, a lot to watch for. Um, and as things ramp up, the protests might also continue as well. There are obviously, and you've eloquently laid them out, like the internal concerns, but Israel is in a place on the map where a lot of their neighbors don't care for them. If I could put it put it lightly that's a, that's how, a lovely understatement yeah, yeah how dangerous is this situation past the internal democracy concerns and the you know protecting of human rights but that enemies on the outside see kind of a divided country and how much does this affect the national security of, of israel in a way that you know these types of divisions maybe in the u.s there's always were but you know, you're not as worried about an outside attack or anything like that. Yeah, it's a total added element. And uh, I had a, someone I was in touch with and, you know, we're all on infinite WhatsApp groups uh, and people, you know, giving news briefings and updates and videos and, and on the ground stuff. And, you know, I heard a friend to say, like, look, if I were Hezbollah, I, I would attack right now. Um, and they're watching, you know, Iran very closely, watching what's happening in the Palestinian street. Uh, the Palestinians, I think, you know, Hamas at least is sort of, you know, waiting and just watching what's going on and to say, okay, you know, let's let Israel sort of self-cannibalize uh, right now. But I think that there is a volatile moment right there. Um, and that's just, you know, the, and its immediate neighbors. Remember the um, country of Jordan last week called in there, you know, summoned their ambassador, the Israeli ambassador, when the finance minister gave a speech in Paris um, with a map of Israel that had, you know, both sides of the Jordan River, which includes now the country of Jordan. And he said, like, okay, is that that official government policy that you're calling to now occupy Jordan? What's the deal there? Um, and so, and, and even the prime minister and the foreign minister had to do damage control for their transportation minister. Her name is Miri Regev, who visited Dubai um, because of the Abraham Accords. Now, over a million Israelis have been to you know, the UAE and Bahrain and and and, and visited the Gulf states. Um, and she came back and she said, no, I didn't like it so much. It wasn't, um, I don't think I'll go back there ever again. And like, ah, we, we worked so hard to get those normalization agreements, which are critically important. And I think Netanyahu sees himself as above all of this, right? This is all background noise for him because his real mission and his real sort of the, the standing that he has, he sees himself as a world leader we should be dealing with geopolitics. We should be dealing, you know, the world economy. Um, should be at, you know, in Davos at the G whatever, you know, G twenty, G eight, you know, all, all of those. 
And he has his sights set on what would be sort of the crown jewel of his, you know, of his career, which would be to get the Saudis to sign on to some sort of an agreement. But I don't see that happening right now, especially especially if there's a you know an incident around the Temple Mount, um, and that would be very very dangerous. So yeah, that is a huge concern, and that's probably what you know probably what led the defense minister to look. This is a national security issue right now. Um, and I'll just add one more piece: is that a few weeks ago we saw a really despicable and, and, and horrible attack at the hand of Jewish settlers in a Palestinian town called Khawara. And those things can can pretty easily spin out of control. Uh, so yeah, it is um, it is a very tense situation right now. And my final question: What kind of has been the U.S. response? Talk about the situation in Israel. Obviously, Israel a very important ally. What has the U.S. said done? Yeah, it's a really important question, and I think. Then, of course, uh, the United States is reinforcing the strength of their alliance and of their friendship and the partnership and, and the support that it gives. And just on Tuesday, the United States President Joe Biden called for the Israeli government to stop the judicial overhaul. And he said it's not a di- difference on a specific policy. It's about the fundamental question of whether or not the United States or whether or not Israel is a dependable U.S. ally ally, and it's becoming quickly unstable, unreliable, untrustworthy, and uh, they're very, very worried about that. I, of course, don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I have to imagine for it to arrive at that public comment that there has been a a great deal happening behind the scenes. Uh, We know that a number of members of Congress have also you know, signed on to letters and made their own public statements and all saying, listen, we want the, you know, the, the U.S.-Israel relationship is based on these shared values, namely democracy. And if we see that beginning to erode, then we worry very much about the relationship. There have been some on the sort of more left uh, liberal spectrum of the Democratic Party starting to call for a conditionalizing or a limiting uh, foreign aid to Israel. Israel is one of the largest recipients of foreign aid in the world, and uh, we are trying to prevent that. I think it's you know my opinion and my movement's opinion that that is not helpful right now, and we're trying to uh, do everything we can to to you know maintain that Israel is both a Jewish and democratic state, uh, and that we can you know really preserve a, a U.S. a solid U.S.-Israel relationship, bipartisan support, all of those things. And uh, let's hope we can we can do that. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.